Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Hey, we jump into the time machine for Throwback Thursday with the Texans ramping up for the season. I thought this would be the perfect time to listen back to my conversation a couple of years ago with the original voice of the Texans, Mark Vandermeer. He's one of the good guys in the business, and there's no voice more associated with Texan football than Mark Vandermeer. In our conversation, I take him back to his beginnings in sports radio. You're going to hear the origin of his catchphrase, rock and roll. And we get into everything from his days at UMass with John Calipari to calling the Miami Hurricanes National Championship and his long association with Andre Johnson. Vandermeer even tells us of a time when he thought about leaving the Texans for greener pastures. You're going to want to hear that story, too. Well, without further ado, let's jump into the time machine and catch up with Mark Vandermeer. The 10, the 5, rock and roll! Touchdown, Houston! Well, it's only fitting that we're here underneath the bowels of the NRG Stadium in the media room. We've got the Texans photos all around us up on the wall. I'm here with Mark Vandermeer. I say it's fitting because 15 years now, you've been the voice of the tech. I mean, it's amazing how, you know, it seems like time flies by because I remember that very first year when you started this. Yeah, it, it seems like it was about two years ago, but it's 15 years ago. And it's funny because for me, all the different places I've worked, obviously I've been here the longest. And when it started to get around five, six, seven years, it just seemed like it was all one big, I don't know, prolonged period of working somewhere that was a lot like the other places I've worked, which were three or four years stops. And uh, it's just gone by so fast. So when you look back, yeah, it does, it does seem incredibly quick. But then you look at all the games and all the history, and, and there's a lot that's taken place. And I hope you know a lot more for me. You talk Texans all the time, so I'm going to try to come up with some maybe angles <laughs> that you you you, ha- you don't have. And, and I want to start a little about just about your life and your career mm-hmm. and kind of leading up to being the, the Texans' voice. Vanderkid. Let's talk about Vanderkid. Yeah. Young Mark Vandermeer. Mm-hmm. What was he like? Was he a big football oh, fan? Me. All, all, I thought you meant my actual kid. No, no. I'm talking oh, about the, 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 the little Mark Vandermeer. Yeah, that's uh, – all right. So I was not a sports fan as a kid. And I I haven't talked about this much, but I have a little bit. Um, I grew up, I grew up wanting to be a rock star, playing guitar, writing songs, uh, really put all my time and passion into that in high school uh, early on and, um, and continue to do so. And then in college is where I really caught fire with sports Uh, in high school. Honestly, I couldn't even tell you who was in the playoffs I could probably tell you who was in the Super Bowl only because, you know, you have to be under a rock to not know that. But seriously, I really didn't watch football. I I did not know the game of football until I went to college my freshman year at Boston University, overlooking the field, watching games, asking the most basic questions to my roommate, who later at my uh, wedding rehearsal dinner would tell this story and just make people howl that I was like so, so... Uh, unknowledgeable about football but within a year of my uh, freshman year of uh, of the fall of freshman year I was an NFL expert you know I just I dove right in because not only just watching college football on the field there at Boston University and being curious about it but then watching NFL football especially the primetime game Monday night and 
I saw it as entertainment. I said, this is really cool. This is really great stuff. I mean, it was all brand new to me. It really was all brand new. I'd never really checked it out. I came from a European family, European parents. They really weren't huge sports fans. And I just dove right in. And then I discovered they write articles about this stuff in the newspaper. Did you know this? I mean, it was a whole big world of discovery to me. And then I started reading Pro Football Weekly. I dove in big. So within a year, year or two, I was just – I knew everything there was to know about the NFL. I, I just inhaled information about the league. So you didn't even have a, a team, a favorite team growing up, no. NFL team or anything like that? I, the first team I fell in love with – actually, so it's funny because it sounds horrible being who I am, but – when you when you are not familiar with pro football and you it's a, it's almost like I was a foreigner coming in and just seeing this for the first time, um, the Cowboys catch your eye back then because it was Tony Dorsett, Danny White was already playing quarterback for them, uh, and they caught my eye. I thought this is a pretty cool kind of team, you know, this guy in the, in the fedora and the suit, and you know, they look different from everybody else. Uh, but I quickly um, steered myself away from them because. I saw the San Diego Chargers play a Monday night game, and that was the team that I fell in love with at first sight. Dan Fouts, the San Diego Chargers Air Coriel attack with Chuck Muncy running the ball and James Brooks out of the backfield and Wes Chandler catching passes. John Jefferson was already gone. Kellen Winslow, Charlie Joyner. Those players just caught my eye, and I fell deeply in love with the Chargers. I'd never even been to San Diego. Fouts to me was different because he was kind of clunky looking the way he backpedaled. The ball was not, if you look at Fouts highlights, the ball is very rarely a perfect spiral. Kind of came out quacking a little bit, but it would always get there. Not always, because he did throw a bunch of picks, especially four against the Oilers in the 79 season um, playoffs. But that was, again, before I fell in love with him. This is the 81 season, which was a heck of a season to jump into the NFL because Montana came alive that year and the Bengals you know, went to the Super Bowl and everything. But, yeah, the Chargers were my team for, uh, for the first two or three years. The Patriots were terrible then, and I was living in Boston, uh, but I was – Definitely keeping tabs on them because they were the local team, but they were terrible then. Steve Rogan was going through a bad time. He would later resurrect his career in the mid-'80s. I think they had Matt Cavanaugh, quarterback, too. I mean, it was a a weird team, and they fired um, Chuck Fairbanks and hired Ron Meyer, who I've met. I've actually, you know, we're great friends, my wife and I, with – with his daughter. So I've met Ron Meyer many times and talked to him and played golf with him. And I don't know, I'm kind of rambling, but I figured this is the format to do it. But yeah, the chargers were it Patriots a little bit. I hate the Patriots now like poison. I mean, (laughs) the last Patriot team I actually, I think rooted for was quarterbacked by Drew Bledsoe in the mid nineties. That was, that was it. Um, And I was never really a big, huge Patriots fan, but they were, they were the local team. So I kind of, gravitated toward them a little bit in the early days yeah and I was a charger guy too and I also love those teams because they were so exciting and of course I remember the the four interception game by Vernon Perry in the playoffs but the Chargers also had the great game with the Dolphins where yeah. Kellen Winslow is carried almost carried off the f- yeah. field you would later call his son's games which I want to get to in a second but you you're you're from Rye, New York you, mm-hmm. you go to Boston University like you you talked about you you then you did the Central Michigan games yeah. at that point. Then you go to UMass from 95 to 99. And so yeah. you're calling football, basketball, baseball, all the teams. And right. I wanted to ask you about that because those are the Coach Cal years. That's where he makes his yeah. name. 
And and I remember specifically because I, me and you were at the same Sweet 16 in 96, I would think, if you were at the Sweet 16 when they were there for the Final Four run, and they played a young Allen Iverson. Yeah, they did in the regional final to get to the Final Four. And that was a heck of a game. I think they held Iverson to six for 24 shooting. That's the number that – those are the numbers that jump out to me. They were really good against Iverson because Camby – was so terrific in the paint. I mean, he he swatted everything away. He was a tremendous player both ends of the floor. He was, you know, he was the Heisman Trophy winner equivalent in college basketball that year. Uh, that was my first year at UMass. So my first year at UMass was Calipari's last year. And I was at Central Michigan the year before, three years before that. But the year before, Central Michigan's basketball team went 3-23. and And then the next year, I'm on a team that goes 35-2. and so it was a completely different situation. Um, to get the UMass job was such a thrill because when I left Boston and embarked on this radio career thing, because I, I was not in radio full time as a broadcaster when I lived in Boston in my early 20s. I kind of had a, a career. I did have a career change at 25, but I had this career cathartic experience of sorts. And when I left Boston to start my radio career, I thought I never... You know, I didn't know I was going to get back. You know, you look back on life, it's like, hey, things work out, but you just don't know. I, I didn't know I was going to get back to Massachusetts. And when I left Massachusetts, UMass was nothing. When I get back, they are the only thing almost. The Celtics were bad. The Bruins were bad. Uh, the Red Sox are always tremendous. And the Patriots just hired Bill Parcells. They were starting to come along. Uh, but they still, to me, were not even close to the Red Sox in stature you know, while Parcells was bringing up the Patriots. So UMass, in the winter anyway, was on the cover of the Globe Sports section every day. I mean, this was a world that I was not even familiar with being a Boston guy, so to speak. Uh, but here they were, and to have that job, to get that job, which was, you know, the, one of the greatest things I've been able to do is, is just get the job at UMass. To get the job and then all of a sudden be doing games. We played uh, Boston College at the Fleet Center, which is – the you know, they call it the garden now, but it's not the real garden. It wasn't. It's not. The real garden is the real garden. They tore it down. Anyway, but we played Boston College there, and it was like the Red River shootout. You know, it was half and half. It was half Boston College, half UMass. Building was packed. It was an amazing game on WBZ in Boston, this blowtorch station that reaches 30 states. You know, it was like it, it, it blew my mind to be part of that. It, I felt like I could not possibly make it any bigger than that. It was it was so thrilling to participate. And I still have when, I, when we go play the Patriots and I'm in the press box, people come up to me and talk about UMass. You know, that's how they know me. Oh, you were the voice of UMass, like not Miami, UMass. And now, oh, yeah, now you're with the Texans. But to them, that's such a big deal. That little slice of history when Calipari was there. And now, you know, the, you do the 30 for 30 on it and all this other stuff. But, yeah, it was very real and very cool. The NCA actually erased that year of your life. Uh, yeah, they did. <laughs> I would say this. You know, the sponsors the sponsors paid the advertising bills because I sold all the advertising for the UMass radio network back then, or like 90% of it. And uh, and I always thought of that. I was, I was thinking, well, we collected those checks, you know, and, and it, Calipari collected his. Like, nobody had to return money other than Canby. He didn't even have to do it, but he did. He returned. He actually paid the university's fee to the NCAA of the NCAA tournament earnings, which was pretty cool of him. After after all, he took the money from agents. 
Last thing I knew, Marcus Camby was uh, running a haircut place out in uh, Pearland. So he's he's around here. He, you guys are in the same place. I know. Again. You know what? I've never like I don't even know if he would know who I was because I was there that one year. We met, but it was so that year we had all this national media around, all this Boston media around, and I was brand new. I barely got to see him. Barely. I don't even know if I ever actually formally interviewed him. I mean, Calipari and I, you know, obviously we go back, but. That was a very strange year and a lot of pressure on him. He handled it. You know, the off-court stuff didn't handle it as well as he could. But, you know, look at the career he's had. He's, he's, and he's, you know, Houstonian. How about that? Marcus Camby. It's terrific. Your, your charmed career continues because you, go, you walk over to the Miami Hurricanes. Uh, 2001 National Championship team. 38 players would end up being selected in the NFL draft. I read at last count. As of 2013, they had a combined 43 trips to the Super Bowl between all of those guys. Wow. The names, I'm going to rattle them off. Clinton Portis. We talked about Kellen Winslow, Sean Taylor, Frank Gore, Willis McGahee, Bryant McKinney, Antrell Roll, Jonathan Vilma. And to my count, six of those guys eventually had a stint here with the Texans. Philip Buchanan, Richard Butler, Chris Myers, and then the last three should all be future Hall of Famers, I'm thinking, and Vince Woolfork, Ed Reed, and Andre Johnson. Was it obvious you were witnessing something really special going on right there? Yes. I don't think as special when you go over the NFL effect. I don't think as special as it would eventually become. We knew it was special, but we didn't know it was that special. We knew there was a lot of talent there. And and I got that job. I mean, there's a whole other, you know, sub- topic here in, in the way I got these jobs. You know, I got the UMass job. It, there was no job, and I, I was able to get a job because I pitched them a position. I said, I'll do your advertising sales, and I'll do the broadcasting. I'll do both. And they created the position for me and actually let go of the play-by-play guy at the time, which I didn't feel good about, but I didn't feel that bad about it either because I got the job. And the Miami Hurricanes opened up because Sonny Hirsch, who's a legend down there who would who had done the games for many years, um, died, actually. Now, he was do only doing color later in his career. They switched stations, and I found out from a friend of mine, Bill Roth, who was the voice of Virginia Tech for many years, uh, that that job was open. So I decided I was going to go down and pursue that job with a, venge a vengeance. And, uh, you know, I tell the story a lot to people because – you know, it, it shows you what it takes to get gigs in this business very hard, you know, and, and people ask me all the time, well, uh, what do I do? Well, I sent at the time we didn't have uh, email of links, you know, email existed, but this is the late 90s. You didn't email links of your work. You sent CDs and DVDs still, you know, DVDs if you're in TV. I must have sent CDs to, I don't know, 15 different people within the university and the radio station separately, which costs money, you know, but it, you have to go all out if you want a gig like that. I had no shot to get that job. And um, I eventually got the program director of the station on the phone, and I said, I'm coming down to Miami anyway. Will you meet with me? He said, all right. And uh, and I was I was coming down to Miami anyway, but I, I backed my dates up so I could spend some time pursuing this job. So I met with him, and he said, well, the athletic director and the general manager, I mean, they, they really all have the most input in this position. So I went down to – University of Miami, and I waited outside Paul D's office. He was the AD until he came out to see me. I said, I just want to shake his hand, you know, and I shook his hand and I, I met him, and that's all that was, you know. But now I know that he knows who I am, 
you know, I'm not some axe murderer. I'm a guy who wants the job. And, you know, I, I appealed to him that way. And um, and he remembered me later. And the general manager, I literally, literally stalked him in the parking lot, you know, coming into work, the general manager of the radio station. So I did all I could could do to try to get that gig early. They asked me for more tape, and I gave it to them. And eventually I found out I got the job from a local newspaper columnist who called me. And he said, I think you got this gig. Like, as crazy as that sounds, because it was going to go to a local guy. And so I get the job. And you know, I bring this up because, you know, I want to tell other people that these jobs are freaking impossible to get, you know, the University of Miami. And they were back on the rise then, Butch Davis and everything. So I get the gig, and I go down there, and it's August already. This is late. And they're, my first day there, they're scrimmaging. And Andre Johnson is on the field, and he looks absolutely amazing. And I said, who's that guy? Number five. That's what he wore in college. They said, oh, that's the next Michael Irvin. But they're going to redshirt him. I'm thinking, why? I said, because we got other players. And they had Santana Moss. They had Reggie Wayne. They had Daryl Jones who played in the NFL. They had Andre King who played in the NFL. Those are lesser-known names, the last two guys. But Reggie Wayne and Santana Moss were in front of him. So Andre Johnson redshirted his freshman year redshirted can you can you imagine that you know they had talent up and down the roster up and down the field and they knew it they knew they had a lot of talent but i don't think they knew and that team had bubba franks who would play in the nfl that team had um, a bunch of other guys uh nate washington they had a lot of players who would eventually make it to the league uh and you mentioned some of the numbers um that 99 team ended up losing three or four games. I think it was four games all told. Yeah, they had a three-game losing streak early. They lost to Virginia Tech late, Michael Vick up there, and they were so disappointed. I was thinking, man, you know, like winning season, this is great. I'd come from UMass where it was Division 1 AA and, you know, football wasn't king there. And Central Michigan before that, football was king there, but how big a king. Um but they said, you don't understand. Here, it's all about championships. And they were right. The next year, we lost to Washington early. We, They lost to Washington early, but they wouldn't lose again for another two and a half, three years, you know. And uh, in 2001, they won the national championship. And there's something about being with the Hurricanes. When you get off the bus with the Hurricanes, it's very much a villainous situation. You are the villain. You are, You are the adversary you are the antagonist there's no doubt about it you know i mean every every team that you play in this world yeah of course when you're the opponent going into their gym their building you're going to be that way but it's extra special with miami and even in our league in the big east especially in basketball i really liked hurricanes basketball because i had a great deep appreciation for basketball obviously but miami in the big east with leonard hamilton coaching them he's at florida state now we're really good and the first year I was there, they won a share of the Big East regular season title and went to the Sweet 16, their best season ever. And it was um, it was phenomenal. That might be my favorite season I've ever been a part of, just that team, that season, because going to places like UConn and Providence and just kick their butts, and the Big East hated Miami. They just needed Miami for football. Basketball, Big East, Blue Bloods. And I know I've seen the 30 for 30. They're not really basketball blue bloods because they were an up and comer. But, you know, by, by now, 20 years later, they're the league. And they hated that Miami was doing well. They couldn't stand it. But it was uh, it was a good time. It was fun to be there. Well, I don't know if you're having Andre Johnson withdrawals, but, you know, you spent the last two decades calling his games when he gets into Canton. It's going to be a little bit of a Mark Vandermeer tribute when they show his highlights. That's got to be a day 
that you're really looking forward to. You've had to think about that a little bit. That's you? that's a, you know I never even thought of that that when they show his highlights going into Canton that I'll be on the call a lot because I've seen a lot of highlights lately with him signing uh, to retire as a Texan and a lot of those calls being played and it's very flattering. It's it's wonderful to be a part of that. I mean it's a great thing about the NFL. They really respect the radio announcer's call. Uh, I think much more than other leagues, other teams, which is understandable because in the NBA and Major League Baseball, the TV play-by-play guys are team guys, and those are home calls. You want the home calls because they're going to get more excited with great things happening to the player. But in the NFL, the home call, the only home call is radio, and that's what makes it so special, I think. And that's why I think NFL radio is the best radio sport to call these days. I think, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, no question about it. Baseball and basketball were outstanding, especially baseball. I mean, the days before baseball had every game on television, the radio guys were just fantastic in terms of stature and compensation and just who they were in the community. They were the voice of the team. The only way you could get the action of the team. Well, that doesn't exist anywhere anymore. But in the NFL, at least they sort of immortalize your voice on NFL film. So, yeah, it's very cool. What do you remember about that moment where you get the call from the Texans that you got the job, the process of that, and, and you know, that moment where you just find out you're going to be calling NFL football games? I'll be honest. I got a call. Tony Wiley was the PR director here at the time before they started playing. This is over a year before they start playing. I get a call from his assistant. Do you want to be on the short list to be the, the first announcer for the Houston Texans? Something like that. Wasn't offering me the job, but do you want to be part of this mix? You know, And I got the feeling like I'm deep in already if I say yes. And I was only at Miami at the time two years. And I thought, man, I can't be hopping around everywhere. And Miami was a great job then. And one which I thought, I thought they'd be on top of the world forever. You know, you're, you're doing as well as they did in football. You're thinking, this is going to be awesome. Basketball, they were awesome. Everything's awesome. Baseball, awesome. I called the national championship with Miami Hurricanes baseball in 01. So I thought, yes, I do want to be involved. But you guys don't start playing until 02. I mean, how is this going to go down? And I really did feel bad about leaving Miami so quickly after two years. So I didn't want to go for that last year. Plus, I knew they were great in football. That was the year they would win the national championship. So what happened is uh, it just took a long time. Between CBS Radio Houston and the Texans, there was a lot of back and forth about when the announcer should start. CBS Radio was going to pay the announcer, no question about it. Texans wanted the announcer here to host events, MC events. You know, it was one event after another prior to the start of Texans history just to unveil this and that and the other thing and whatever. You know, a lot of dog and pony shows around Houston. I get it. But I didn't want to be off the air for a year, you know. So it was very difficult to know how aggressive I should be because I don't just sit and wait around for them to come to me. It's like if I'm going to go for it, I'm going to go for it. So I said, yeah, I do want to be interested. And Larry, I saw Larry Coker later that day as the head coach of the Hurricanes at the time. He said, I got a call for the Texans about you. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, (laughs) I mean, I feel like this is crazy. You know, I I felt like, you know, uh, somebody called my wife and said, I want to marry your husband or something. It's just weird. It was a weird feeling. And I said, coach, uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't ask for this. And he's like, I know. I know. He's like, but it's the NFL. It's the NFL. And everybody understood it's the NFL. It doesn't come along very often. There are 32 jobs. I mean, these jobs don't turn over. I think since I've been in the league 15 years, maybe four times has there been an opening, maybe. 
So it's it's super tough to get these gigs. And I decided, again, to bring myself here. You know, I fly myself in. I met with Bill Van Rysdam over at CBS Radio. I met with Laura Morris over there. They were running the show over there at the time. Uh, that was one visit. Another visit, I had a combined interview, and Jamie Roots was in it, Tony Wiley. Um, it was the radio station and the Texans combined. I think I was in a room with six people, you know, and me, um, and just giving it my best shot. And, again, I came in on my own dime, and I think they liked that. It shows that you want the job. So I very much was uh, going in on a 45-degree angle, and, uh, and I, ha- I actually filled in on an NFL playoff game to cap the 01 season and it was on one of the stations here the network game and everybody heard it and i think you know it just kind of solidified me as a candidate so um i got a call it w- there was no one moment getting this job there was no one that's the crystal moment i felt like i had a good shot to get it i was doing the right things and eventually i got it we negotiated you know it became even bigger than i thought because the nfl you know being in college athletics for so long that's what I was. I mean, I followed the league and I was into the league from an early, early time, as I told you. But being in college athletics for so long, uh, that tends to be your whole universe. It is your whole universe. And, you know, the NFL is huge. But until you're in that booth every week on Sunday, you don't realize the magnitude, the the intensity of that game, that day, that Sunday afternoon, every weekend, I always say this, is like the NCAA tournament. Like, we all get excited about the first and second round of the NCAA tournament. That's every Sunday at the NFL, and then some. Every Sunday in the league is just this complete showdown of 16 versus 16, you know, whatever, 15, primetime games excluded. But you get my drift here. It is so big every week. And once you do that for a while, things, other things you do just don't seem as big, even if they are, even if they're big collegiately or whatever. They just don't seem to have the same kind of buzz that the NFL on a Sunday afternoon does. So uh, I'm so grateful that I'm here. I'm grateful that I got here and, uh, and I want it to go on forever. I mean, not just getting an NFL job, but it's got to be even more special. You're the voice of the original <laughs> Texans. Yeah. I mean, this is you're starting the franchise from ground zero. So people will identify you for decades and decades, no matter how, how much longer you go on, they're going to go, Oh, well he's that's Mark Vandermeer. That's the guy that's who identify with the Texans. That, that did appeal to me that thought. And a lot of people I talked to at the time that I respected pointed that out. I mean, I knew it too, but how, special that would be to be the only guy you know the first guy and then for so long however long it lasts the only guy who's ever called games and uh and i take a lot of pride in that you know there there was a a time robert where i decided that all right so i get here and i'm thinking i'm doing the talk show i did 9 to 11 on sports radio 610 which is a whole other story you know i'm doing a talk show as an out-of-market host uh, but, you know, I came in with the Texans. I was born here with the Texans. So we sort of came into the market together, which, you know, sort of made it OK, because I think it's very tough to come into a market, especially then. There was only one sports radio station and now there are five. So uh, the early days of doing that, of being here, you know, it really um, it made me want to. Yes, be fully committed to this. But also I thought, well, I could do some TV stuff on the side. I could do that. I did Westwood One very early. I did NCAA tournament on Westwood One, which is a blast. And I still like doing some college basketball. But as the years went by, I realized 
this is my life's work. This is what I want to do. Um, there have been a few times where I've been tempted. We're not tempted, but I've been, you know, I've been presented with other options. All right. Let's just put it that way. I had an agent talk to me very seriously in the late uh, O's, 08, 09, about, hey, why don't you just, you know, we have a good ESPN type package for you. You can get, you know, a lot of games, 70, 80 games and everything. You know, you probably have to stop doing the Texans on the radio, but wouldn't it be great to do all this TV? And I thought, I really never want to stop doing the Texans on the radio. I just thought this is that would be a horrible move for me, you know, just career-wise. Never mind how special it is and all the sentimental and whatever else, you know. It just would be a bad career move because then you're just another guy calling TV games and you're on the road all the time. Now, it's a tremendous job to have, don't get me wrong, but I like being the voice of a team. You know, that's really what I've, all I've ever really wanted. One of my first jobs, I was working in State College, Pennsylvania. I wasn't doing um, – I was doing some college stuff, but not not men's and women's basketball. I was doing women's basketball, not men's basketball. I wasn't doing football, doing a lot of their other sports. And um, one of the sports was high school hockey. And I was at the Igloo in Pittsburgh, and we did an afternoon playoff game. Then later that night, I saw Mike Lang setting up for a Penguins game. Mike Lang's a you know famous voice of the Penguins, and I'm watching Mike Lang set up, and I just and. It's not like I think Mike Lang is the best play-by-play guy ever, but for some reason at that moment, I thought he's the voice of this thing. He is the Penguins. I want to be that guy for a team. I think that is the thing to be. And I, I always loved Johnny Most. I love Chick Hearn. I mean, I, you know, Ernie Harwell, you know, all these guys who are really identified, like you were saying with the team, I want to be that. What, what could be better than that? You know, unless you're Al Michaels or, Mike Tarico, maybe even Mike Tarico doesn't have it, but unless you're one of those type play-by-play yeah. announcers, yeah. I, why not be the voice of a team and always be top in the community, one of those people who's strongly identified with the team. You live and die with the wins and losses. I mean, the losses are really excruciating, but it makes the wins that much sweeter. Why not do it that way? And, um, and I, it was in the late O's where I finally decided, you know what? Uh, Forget about it, all the rest of my life, you know, just make this my life, you know, and really be, and I was never looking to get out, but I was always looking to add to it, you know, and all I really needed to add to it over time was, you know, the job I have now as vice president of broadcasting. I mean, you know, obviously that's a, that's a big deal, but just embrace it and, and love being the voice of this team and not worry about the rest of it. You know, as long as I can make it, why not? Your three favorite moments. I'm going to put you on the spot here. As a, as a broadcaster for the Texans, as the voice of the Texans, uh, whether it's a play or a game, uh, I'll let you put whatever category you want to put into. I'm going to guess that maybe the first thing out of your mouth will be first game, Dallas Cowboys, winning that game right off, right off the bat. Right well, see, sometimes my moments are not their moments. You know what I mean? Yeah. That game was incredible. You know, the last football game I called before that was the national championship with Miami beating Nebraska. So the next meaningful game, we had preseason games, but the next meaningful game was this, Texans against the Cowboys. And, I mean, there's there's no comparison to me what was bigger. You know, as, as big as the national championship game was, Texans and Cowboys, and being in this city and feeling that vibe of – the frustration being lifted off, you know, people without professional football for five years. And are we ever going to get it again? And 
you know, we, our team moved and now we have this new team and they're beating the Cowboys. I mean, you can't, you really, you can't top it in so many ways that I just described. David Carr to Billy Miller, the first touchdown in Texans history. And I thought for years that our biggest challenge was going to be replacing that as the biggest win in the history of the franchise. I mean, how do you replace that? And you need to replace it because you need to win championships, you know? And I think, I think we did replace it because winning the, Bengals game on the road at 11 to get to the playoffs for the first time was so special, uh, but it was a road game. You know, we didn't get to do it in front of our fans and all that, but there was something really magical about that. You know, it was, you know, us against the world and, and that whole thing and the way the players found out and the way we found out we're in the booth and I'm calling, um, you know, the game was over and I'm calling off a monitor, the end of the Titans, New Orleans Saints game waiting for that thing to end and waiting for Jake Locker to go down, you know, because he still had the ball late with a chance to win. And we just needed to have the saints finish the job. And once they did, you know, I erupted in the booth and that's the call that a lot of, um, you know, the six ten used it and the Texans, I think used it, you know, in their video stuff. That was the call. It was, it was actually, you know, you don't hear me saying the Titans lose, but you hear me saying the Texans win the AFC South. Cause that was the moment it happened, you know? So little things like that in the booth, the little subtleties, being with the guys uh, during those moments, Green Bay in 08 with Chris Brown winning it on a 40-yard field goal at the buzzer, uh, even though that season was, you know, 8-8 eight and eight season. And that, that win was just part of an uphill climb back from a 3-7 and seven start. Um, some of those wins I really appreciate more than anything. Beating the Bengals in 2015 when the Texans go in there at 2-5, no, at three and five, when they were two and five a few weeks before, I mean, that was phenomenal, you know, and that's pretty fresh in everyone's mind. So there, there's so many, um, but it's often those ones that like don't get discussed as much that are the best. Let me ask you this, because this is something I've always wondered, you know, you're, you're a football fan, you become a Texan fan, but as a fan, we can be critical of a play call, a player's effort, something like that. Your paycheck comes from the Texans. Mm -hmm. So there's a fine line you got to straddle. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, I've done that my whole career, you know. I've been the voice. I was, like I said, I was always at Penn State women's basketball, Central Michigan, UMass, Miami, here. And even though I've worked for the station for most of my career and not the team, it's the same kind of thing. You're the voice of the team. You're the voice. If you're the voice of X, how do you treat X? And I've always handled it the same way. You state fact, and facts are facts. They're indisputable. I mean, fact. Uh, if the Texans get blown out by 40 and they had a terrible day, you just say it, you know, this is a terrible day. I mean, the the two two or three of the worst losses in the history of the franchise happened during the Bill O'Brien era. And some of the more special wins have happened during the Bill O'Brien era. The loss to Atlanta in 15, the loss to Miami in 15. I mean, I've never seen anything like those. And I have to say it. I've never seen anything like this. This is ridiculous how badly they lost, right? You just got to be honest about it. But the, the difference between me and a lot of the other announcers and talk show hosts, because a big part of my job is doing these talk shows, um, the big difference between is I won't say the words suck. You know, they sucked. You know, I'm not going to use those words. I'm not going to get personal. Um, the, the way I describe it to a lot of people also is these guys aren't horrible players, but they might have played horribly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You don't insult the person. You insult, not insult. 
you criticize the performance, you know, and if you criticize the performance, no one can argue with that. You know, if Brian Hoyer throws four interceptions, Brian Hoyer threw four interceptions. He was terrible. He was terrible, meaning his performance was terrible, not he's terrible, because clearly Brian's better than that. You know, we've had a lot of bad performances here with the guy. Even at last year, Osweiler, I still think Osweiler's a better quarterback than what he showed last year, but he had a terrible year, you know. Now, maybe he's not much better. I don't know. Maybe he'll show that he is, but that's just my personal opinion. But you just stick to the performance, stick to the facts. Don't get don't get insulting. You know, a lot of these guys, they just start punching around and dragging people's names through the mud. And very often, very often they're wrong. It's almost like this, Robert. Like, I could say the the, the franchise should be relocated. Everybody should be fired. You know, it doesn't matter what I say. They're still going to call me a homer. I'm the voice of the Texans. I could say the most critical thing ever. It's not going to matter. It's not going to change that part of the reputation to some. What I try to be is entertaining, informative, uh, Try to keep it light. It's sports. My gosh, you know, this is entertainment, really. That's what it is. And I know it's serious because we want them to win badly. And believe me, I want them to win so bad. And I will criticize, be critical. But I'll also look at things from their point of view. What's their side of the story? Why did they do what they did? Why did O'Brien go for it up for it now? Why did Rick Smith draft this guy? You know, whatever. Um, Present their side of things because that is part of my job, getting a paycheck. And somebody else also said this to me once about people who do what I do. There's got to be a thin membrane between you and the team. As close as you are to the team, you're still not the team. I don't say we. I'll say we more in this context or on a talk show. Yeah, remember remember when we went to so-and-so and we, you know, I might say it like that. On the play-by-play, I will not say we. You know, I will not say we in terms of me and the team. I won't do it, you know. I might say to Andre, man, we've been through a too, you know, few too many of these or something, but we don't. You know, we don't go we a lot in terms of we got the ball at the 20 yard. I, I do not do that because I still think you have to sort of keep it a little bit separate. And a lot of that criticism has got to be Andre's because he's the analyst. What has it been like to work with him? And I, I feel like having Andre for you had to be a huge benefit because you come in as the outsider. And here's yeah. Andre with already the credibility with people in Houston from his days at the University of Houston, and he's a local product too. Yeah, that's big. I mean, Andre's a, an icon. You know, he's a legend. Um, you win the Heisman Trophy, especially the way he won it in a year where they couldn't get on television. And that's fantastic. The guy's amazing. Um, I have nothing but respect for him. He's got a heart of gold. He's really good at what he does. I think that and I've analyzed this a lot. I think we have a good sound together. We complement each other well. There's something about the way we fit together. It's chemistry. It's hard to define as it always is. I've listened to playback and I think we just have a good sound together. It just sounds good. Us being together in the booth. It sounds right. Because I, I really do believe radio, audio, it's a, it's a medium where, you know, how you sound is important. You know, I, I sometimes say to people having a good voice on the radio is like being good looking on television. You know, it's just one of those things. It's it's helpful. It's not the be all end all, but it's certainly helpful as far as Andre's ability. I mean, he's tremendous because he prepares. He puts the work in. He saw from an early time in his profession, in this profession, that you got to do the work. You know, he talked to the right people. He took the advice, you know, and a lot of people ask his advice. A lot of former athletes ask Andre's advice and he'll give it to them. And a lot of them don't follow it. They just uh, they either don't want to do it or whatever. It's like a lot of things in life. You know, some people do the work. Some people don't. He puts in the work and 
he's really easy to work with, and that's key. You know, he doesn't step on my calls, which, you know, hey, it's all about me. i got to be hurt. But, you know, he, he understands the, the balance, the nuances of, of being in the booth. And, you know, I did the morning show with him for two years on Sports Radio 610. I think that helped us so much, just having to fill four hours together. I mean, when you go through that with, with anybody, you start to get really good, you know, especially during, you know, lighter periods and news and things like that. And, um, and he and I have been through a lot together. We're, we're going to continue to do so. Just a couple more questions, and I'm going to spin it back to where we started from. You wanted to be a rock star. Mm-hmm. Rock and roll. Where does rock and roll come from? How did that happen? Oh, the call? Yeah. Well, first of all, anybody who's listening who cares, I don't say it all the time. I don't know. Maybe I said it six or seven times all last year. The year before, I think I said it like three times. My wife is saying, you got to say it more. I only say it for longer or bigger touchdowns. I didn't say it for the first touchdown in team history because I knew that that would that's that had to be a Texans call and you know not about me. Not that it's about me anyway, but I throw rock and roll in there from time to time. People think it's there all the time because they hear it in promos and we use it in the show intros and they're like, oh, he's the guy who always says rock and roll. And I, the reason I say that as a disclaimer is because I know that some people don't like it. But when I interviewed for the job, I said I could drop that. It was in my demo tape with the Hurricanes. I said rock and roll. I said I could drop it. They're like, no, 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 keep it, keep it, keep it. So, all right, here it is. It's, you know, it's really cool. People have made T-shirts and stuff, whatever. And I know it's not for everybody. That's why I don't say it all the time. Anyway, it started at Central Michigan. It's a basketball thing. I used to say it for dunks. It's a, you know, it's a really cool thing to say in a basketball (laughs) broadcast. And then I thought, I wonder if I could do this with football. And then I started doing it. We had this great year at Central in 94 where we won the Mid-American Conference. And back then, only one team from that conference went to a bowl. So it was huge to win the league. You so know, you, did, like, you didn't plan it out when you started it? No, it just sort of sort of happened. Like, I used to say in cue to my producer, like, are we ready to rock? You know, are we, everybody ready? Like, let's, you know, let's get, <laughs> I was getting myself fired up. And the guys running the board in the studio, like, are you ready to rock? Yeah, I'm ready to rock. I'm over here with, like, a soda in my underwear. I'm ready to rock. Anyway, but I was like, ready to rock. And I just, rock became part of the vernacular. And I just one day said rock and roll after a dunk. I'm like, that, that was all right, you know. So I just started doing it. Thanks so much, Mark, for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Such a blast to catch up with Mark Vandermeer. I hope you enjoyed my throwback Thursday this week. Don't forget to go back into our archives and find more classic throwback Thursday interviews. We do this all the time. It's a fun way to catch up with everything that we've done in Houston sports talk history. It's over. The Texans have done it. They have beaten the Dallas Cowboys on opening night in team history. An historic night as the Houston Texans debut with a blast. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.